Look at the books of the Old Testament, find Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 42. And as you turn there, I need to confess something to you guys. Something happened this past week that made me really angry. Anybody else experienced the motion of anger this past week? Thank you for being honest. I, I appreciate that. And this, this anger has to do with my adorable dog named Coco. I think we might even have a picture. Look, isn't she adorable? So many of you guys know the story of Coco. Um, it, it all stems from my awesome daughter, Zoe, um, who prayed every single one of her prayers, multiple prayers, and invited anybody she interacted with to pray, including most Redemption Kids volunteers, that, that she would get a dog. God sovereignly answered her prayers through my wife during COVID. Anybody else end up with a COVID animal dog? Okay, I see a, a few of you guys there. So, so Coco is no longer a puppy. Coco's three years old. When I work from home, Coco sleeps all day. But in this particular instance, it was after dinner, Wednesday night. We we'd sat down, ate dinner as a family, I walk into the living room. Actually, we heard some ruffling um, and walked into the living room, and, and you're not going to believe what Coco was doing. She was destroying my Bible. You can see the, the top right. I, I wish we could zoom in here and, like, you guys could see this. But on, do you see that there's not a fully formed top right corner? anymore. So if you were to go from the beginning of my Bible all the way, I think, to Job chapter 5. She has devoured the top right corner through Job chapter 5. On the bottom right corner, I'll just open it up. You might can see this a little clearer here, all the way through here till about John, 1 John in the New Testament, like the whole chunk has been removed. For me to get a clean page unaffected by my dog, it's, it's 2 John. So, so 2 John, 3 John, Jude and Revelation, I'm good. But if I text you and I'm like, hey, can you help me with like Ezra, uh, Ezra, you know, I need some help on chapter 7. I may need some help there. Dude, I was so angry. And I, I thought about a way to like make this sound fun, like, she was devouring the word. It did not depart from her mouth. Um, she was feasting. I mean, in some ways, I'm like, let's go, Coco. Like, there's a great illustration there. Thank you, Tanner, for the clapping. Um, for those of you wondering, we did not go through her poop. I'm sure it was blessed. Um, <laughs> But do you know why I'm so mad? Like, this is my favorite Bible. I read it personally. This is the Bible that I preach from. This is the Bible when I read and a verse sticks out, like I'm underlining it. Like I have dreams of like Bibles that I work through. Like these are gonna be handed down to my kids and grandkids one day. So just like, man, what were the things that impacted me? And in that moment, I just longed for justice to be served. I, like, I was wronged, this isn't right, and you should have to pay for this in some way. Now, I do realize, I'll acknowledge that we're talking about a dog. And you're like, what is the entire point of this illustration? In the grand scheme of things, I can buy another Bible, which I will. Maybe I've actually requested it as a, as a Christmas present, so who knows, maybe there's hope on the 25th that a new Bible arrives um, but my guess is that every single one of you, whether you're professing to follow Jesus, or maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm kind of exploring who Jesus is. Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I don't want nothing to do with this Jesus, but, but I'm, I'm here. I know every single one of you have an experience where you've said, this is not right. This is not how this world is meant to be. This is 
not just. Just like me, you long for justice. And what I want to tell you today is that Christmas has a lot to do with justice. When we turn to Isaiah 42 today, we're going to be looking at what's called the first of four servant songs. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then you've got Isaiah 52 and 53. The reason they're called servant songs is because they're poems that reference a special servant, this ideal servant who accomplishes God's purposes for Israel and the entire world. Now, let me just step back for a second. As we think about the larger picture, if if you've been with us for a while, we've been looking at different passages in the Old Testament, and we've been saying Jesus is the story. So look at this graphic here. Uh, It's helpful for me. I like to think of the Bible in terms of a six-act drama. So you start in Genesis chapter 1 with creation. Man was made to be with God. It's God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence and God's blessing. We know pretty soon after that in Genesis 3, the fall happens. Adam and Eve, they disobey, they rebel against God. And as a result, they are kicked out of the garden. And so you can see their relationship with God was broken. And that's the case for you and I. But there's hope. Christmas is about joy. Christmas is about justice. Christmas is about hope. The hope is that God has been promising as we read through the Old Testament, that, that, that brokenness is not the end of the story. Separation is not the end of the story. That God is going to work through an individual, through a people, to accomplish his purpose to get us back to himself. God longs to be an intimate relationship with every single one of us. And so you see the third act of this drama is Israel. God chose Israel. Jacob preached a couple of months ago when we started with Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, all the nations are going to be blessed. And so we go from Abraham to Jacob. We end up with Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. We get the 12 tribes of Israel and we have this people. You guys probably remember a sermon that I talked about how God raised up a man named Moses who was called God's servant. Moses led God's people from slavery to Egypt across the Red Sea to the edge of the promised land, but he could not enter it. And then God raises up other people like Joshua who takes God's people into the land and you have Israel in the land of God. They're building the temple which represents the presence of God. But you guys know the story of Israel. Actually, let's go to the next slide, which is more of a zoomed in picture of this six-act drama. It's called the Bible Timeline. So I want you to look here. You can see creation and fall here. The flood, Tower of Babel, promised to Abraham. And you have this upward trajectory. They go into the land. They're capturing the land. They're building up and they're obeying God's commands, this presence of God. But then we see a, down, a division and decline. So after David and Solomon in Israel, what we see is that the nation was divided. You have the northern kingdom. You have the southern kingdom. And you have king after king. Go read through. And you'll see king after king who did not follow God's commands. And that Israel, over time, not only was there decline and division, there was exile. They were kicked out of the land. It's almost like we're replaying the story of Act 2 in the fall. There's separation from God. They were in in the land, but now they're separated from God. So when we could, you're like, John, what are you doing here? Here's the point. When we pick up an Isaiah, Isaiah is a prophet writing to Israel with prophetic hope. Do you see the dots there? Dot, 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 dot. Isaiah in the middle of the brokenness and destruction and exile is giving hope. God is not done. Remember the promise? God longs to restore us to himself and he will be faithful. And that's what Isaiah is about. Isaiah is speaking to Israel in the middle of exile. And he's offering hope when they're asking questions like, God, will we ever return to the land? Are you you done with us? What about these promises 
that you've made. That's our context. So Isaiah 42, and I do have all of Isaiah 42 here in my Bible, just in case you were wondering. I'm just missing the bottom left footnote number one. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse one, the word of God says this. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you, of them. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we ask, would you give us understanding, illuminate our minds? God, would you stir our affections, our hearts? God, would you help us to understand and see who this servant is and what you want us to do with this servant? God, lead and guide our time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to walk through this passage today by asking and answering three questions. The first one is this, who is this servant? The second question, what is his mission? And the third, how should we respond? So first question here, who is this servant? Let me just give you a few brief observations um, about the text. And I know we had it up there originally here. This is why I encourage you, if you've got a Bible, to pull it out, because I'm going to point back. Um, to the text over and over. If you look at the structure of this text here, notice that in in verses one through four, we have God presenting the servant, right? My servant, my chosen, my spirit. He will bring, he will not cry out. He's just, he's introducing us to this servant. But what happens in verses six and seven, God is gonna speak and address the servant. So if you look at verses 6 and 7, like in my Bible, there's quotation marks in verse 6. This is now God has presented the servant. Now God is going to speak to the servant. Also, what may not be apparent to you is if we were reading through the whole book of Isaiah, what we would see in Isaiah 41 is that God was addressing idolatry. So I don't have it on the screen, but if you were to look back, like in verse 22 of Isaiah 41, if you've got your Bible and can flip back or scroll back, you hear God say something like this. He's addressing the idols. He says in verse 22, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. In other words, let's see if the idols can tell us what's going to happen in the future. Tell us us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them. Or declare to us the things to come. Or verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. In other words, prove yourself to us. Or verse 24, behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. Jump down to verse 26. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and before him that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. Or verse 29, behold, they, speaking of the idol-worshiping nations, are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The context of Isaiah here is he speaking to 
even Israel who was tempted, like mentioned, they were in exile. They were in Babylon. They're seeing the idolatry of the nations that are worshiping these created images. And he's like, tell me about them. What can they do for you? In contrast to that, we have God who's telling us about himself, right? Like look at verse, uh, we're now back in chapter 42. Look at verse 5. How does God introduce himself to us? Do you see that? Thus God, the Lord, what did he do? He created the heavens and stretched them out. In other words, he's implying, tell me about your idols. Like, what have they created? The God who was speaking here created everything. He continues. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to people on it. You and I are here today because God is upholding this universe and he's giving you physical breath to breathe and stay alive. Verse 6, I am the Lord. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that's my name. I give my glory to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Do you hear this tension here? These idols are tempted. They're worshiping that which would steal glory that is only due to God. Verse 9, behold, the former things have come to pass. In other words, hey, I've told you. Look back in the scriptures. Be reminded of the many things that I told you were going to happen. And look, they've been fulfilled. I'm the God who can tell you what's going to come. And it actually happens. God always keeps his promises. This is the God. In contrast to the idols who introduces us to this servant. And look at, in verses 1 through 4, look at how he describes who this servant is. He says, this is my servant. This is my chosen. My soul delights. My spirit has been put upon him. What we see here is that the, the success of this servant will be the result of God's strength. God has empowered this servant. God is taking this servant by the hand and God delights in this servant. In contrast to the idolatry that's happening, this is one whom God delights in. His pleasure is upon. And even here in this language, God will put his spirit, I don't know if you, you guys picked this up in Isaiah 41 verse 29, he talks about the empty wind of the idols. In contrast to the empty wind of the idols, this servant has God's true spirit that has been put in him. And so as we think about who this servant is, I think we would first identify this servant with Israel. It would be natural to see Israel as this servant. In fact, back in chapter 41, that's what Isaiah does. In Isaiah 41, I think we've got this here on the screen, Isaiah 41 verse 8. It says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, before I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We hear similar language that's echoed in chapter 42. So while it's true that Israel, in some sense, is this servant. There are clues that Isaiah gives us to suggest that this servant is not just Israel as a whole, but a specific person within Israel who is distinct from the whole. Now, we're not going to jump into this today, but I want to give you some homework. Go read through the, the other servant songs. This, we can't just isolate this one. Go read Isaiah 49. Go read Isaiah 50. Go read Isaiah 52 and 53. What you're going to come away with is, hey, this isn't just Israel as God's servant. This seems to be some individual that Isaiah is talking about that God is going to bring up from within the midst of Israel. But as we think about Israel as the servant, one of the challenges that we have is, is Israel in a lot of ways fails over and over 
and over again. If we're to go through different portions of Isaiah, Isaiah would say Israel is blind. We would see that Isaiah has failed to keep, um, Israel has failed to keep God's laws. We would see that Israel's done much injustice. We're going to look at chapter 1 in a second. This is the same Israel that's been exiled. How is Israel going to save herself? But if we were to just think back and how God's worked, God has always raised up individuals within Israel to accomplish his, pur- his purposes. We've already mentioned Abraham. We've talked about, let's, let's say, Joseph. Let's look at Moses. Let's look at King David. Like God is using individuals. And so what seems to be in Isaiah 42 is that there's going to be a servant that is a part of Israel that's going to be characteristic of what the ideal of what Israel should be and with whom is going to deliver and save and redeem Israel. This is what there's hope. I told you, like, Israel's in exile, and they're asking God, is there, is there any hope? And the answer is yes, this hope. There's hope because I'm going to send my servant. If I don't send my servant, there's not hope. And here's the key point. There's not hope just because God's going to bring them from exile and back into the land. There's hope because God's going to send his servant. And our hope is connected with this servant. And so who is this servant? This servant in some way is Israel, but in another very real sense, it's Jesus. Jesus, the one born of the Virgin Mary, is God's son, and he is God's servant who was going to accomplish God's purposes in the world. I'm not going to read through these, but let me give you a couple other passages that we think about Jesus as this servant. You could go read Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 describes this root of Jesse whom God's spirit is going to be upon. Go read Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 talks about God going to pour his spirit we see Isaiah 61 in the New Testament where, where Luke, the, Luke says, Jesus, in Luke 4, Jesus steps into the temple, unrolls the scroll, and reads from Isaiah 61 and says, this has been fulfilled. If you were to keep reading in the servant songs in Isaiah 53, you would see this individual servant who was going to lay down his life. He's a suffering servant. But let me draw your attention to this. Look in in the text here. In verse 6, when we see God address and speak to this servant, he says, I am the Lord. I have called you. Do you have a little footnote by the word you there? If you do, go down to the bottom. And I actually have this footnote at the bottom here. And it says, the Hebrew for you is singular. Four times in this verse. In other words, when God is addressing this servant, he's not saying y'all, like collectively. There's my southernness coming out in me. You're like, man, I hear southernness throughout the whole sermon. Amen. (laughs) He's saying you as an individual when he's addressing this servant. And so as we look here, and if we're to go to the New Testament, I want to just give you some echoes. As we think about the servant, do you remember at Jesus' baptism? In Jesus' baptism, in Matthew chapter 3, when he comes out of the water, what does, what does the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. In other words, I take delight in him. That's echoing this Isaiah 42. God's delight is upon this son. What about when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in, um, in Luke chapter 9, he's up on the mountain, transfigured, and in this voice, it says, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Think about the descriptions of Jesus' life and mission. You see here in Mark 10, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If you were to think of anybody who's described as a servant, it's Jesus. If we were to go ahead to Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, after Jesus heals 
Matthew writes, and he says this, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 43, 42 here, three verses right out of it. Matthew's looking back, and he's saying, Jesus is fulfilling this. So Jesus is the one who offers Israel um, and the world hope for a new horizon. He's the one who will usher in the true return from exile and lead us into a new creation where all who trust him can enjoy God's presence, blessing, and rest. Jesus is the servant. servant. The second question is, what is his mission? What is his mission? His mission, in one word, is justice. Look at the text there in Isaiah 42. We see this word justice show up three times. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Jump down to verse 3. A bruised reed he won't break. A faintly burning wick he'll not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Let me just talk briefly about justice. When we think about God's justice, let's think about it from a retributive standpoint and a reparative standpoint. Let me just unpack these. When we think retributed, it's God punishes evil doing. It's like when there's injustice, like as I was longing for like cocoa, like you ought to pay. Like, we long for, for things to be made right. Like, you did this to me. Whether you, you, you weren't aware of it. You were just hungry and being a dog. But we long for there to be some type of payment. But on the flip side, reparative. This is about God restoring those who are victims of injustice. We long for things not to just be paid. We long for it to be made right. So when we think about justice related to my devoured Bible, it's like there's some sense between me and Coco and justice, but then another sense of like, until this is made right, it hasn't been fully addressed. Now, as we think through the larger story of scripture, ultimately, Justice doesn't come to final fulfillment until the new heavens and the new earth, right? We live in the already, not yet. Like one day, every single, every single one of us are gonna, be a, are gonna give an account before God, the creator, and justice will be made either through us paying that or us trusting in Jesus, who paid that punishment. This is where like Jesus is essential to us in thinking about justice. But in a very real sense, I'm like, okay, that's been paid, but I still long for things to be made right. This is one of the reasons I believe Christianity is one of the best explanations for the world we live in. We long for things to be made right, and God is committed to that. This is why Act 6 of the circle, which I didn't get there. After Israel, it's Jesus, Act 5, Act 4, Act 5 is the church. Act 6 is new heavens and new earth, new creation. This is where everything will be made new. That's where ultimate justice has been brought to completion. But, but we long to taste that now. We long for the world to be made right. I also like to think of this in justice in terms of like a vertical and then a horizontal component, particularly thinking from like an individual. Justice is where I've been, God and I have a right relationship with each other. And also where there's a right relationship horizontally between me and others, including the proper distribution of goods and honor to everybody. Now, I want to take us to a verse. I told you Isaiah 1, we talk about justice. In Isaiah 1, we've got this on the screen here. This is how Isaiah begins this whole book here. Isaiah 1. Let me see here. Hey, keep scrolling forward a couple. 
because I want to make sure we get to look at this. Isaiah 1. Yeah, there we go. Boom, love it. Isaiah 1, verse 16 says this. Wash your hands. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red crimson, they shall be like wool. Leave that up on the screen for a second because I want to talk through this. As I was reading through an article this past week by Tim Keller and talking about the gospel and justice, he highlights four facets of justice. The first one is this, radical generosity. Now look at these verses. Where might you see radical generosity tied to justice? And when, when, when Keller was talking about radical generosity he, and justice, he's like, as I think about my money, it's not like my money belongs to me or my money belongs to the government. It's my money belongs to God. And I am to steward that with radical generosity because that's who our God is. Now look at Isaiah 1 here. You hear this language, seek justice. How, how are they to do that? What are the examples that he gave here? He says, go bring justice to the fatherless. That's going to require radical generosity. This person has no father or mother that's providing for them. You can't do that and be stingy. Plead the widow's cause. How are we going to help widows without radical generosity? So as you think about justice, and as we think about imitating the justice that this servant is coming to bring, we must look ourselves in the mirror and say, God, is there radical generosity marked in all of my life? As I think about how I interact with my spouse and kids, is it marked by radical generosity? As I think about how I interact and where I work, the way you interact with your coworkers, would they say radical generosity? The way you interact with your neighbors, I want to display radical generosity. So you can ask, am I stepping into these spaces to give and take? Or am I stepping in these spaces to release and give? In student group this past week, we were, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. And, and they've been actually memorizing all of Ephesians chapter 2. Hey, T, one Sunday, I think we should bring up student group, and they're going to just quote Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, um, because they're going to crush it. But hey, we've been, we walked through Ephesians 4, and, and Paul's talking about how the gospel shapes us. And he says, look, don't steal anymore. Look, when, when you were not a follower of Christ, this is how you lived. You looked at how you could use people to get what you wanted. He says, no, go actually work with your hands so that you can do what? that you might have something to give to anyone who is in need. It's not just go work so that you don't have to steal. It's go work so that you can be generous. Radical generosity. The second, keep this up here because we're going to come back to it. He says universal equality as we think about justice. And this stems from every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God. Their image bears and as a result of that, every human being has dignity and worth, and we're, to sh we're not to show partiality. We show love, and we show respect to everyone. The third, he says this, advocacy. Now look back at Isaiah 1. Where do you see advocacy? It's not just go be generous. He's saying, hey, for some people, they need a voice because they have no power. Where do you see advocacy in Isaiah 1? Plead the widow's cause. Be a voice. Speak up. We're to have special concern for the poor, the weak, the powerless. Yes, meet material needs. Help people pursue self-sufficiency. Address social structures that disadvantage certain groups. And then the fourth aspect of justice, he says, is responsibility. Individual and corporate. And so I would have you even thinking about justice in your individual domains. But we should also think about it from corporate domains. For sake of time, like we could preach a whole sermon on this. So like 
We'll just have to come back or reference a, a previous sermon that we've preached. Here's the point. What is the mission of this servant? It's justice. What we long for, all things to be made right, this is what he's bringing. And notice how he goes about this justice. Look back at the text here with me in Isaiah 42. How does he bring about this justice? We see it in verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Do you know? Well, let me pause here for a second. What it's talking about here, this, um, he's not going to cry aloud. He, in contrast to the rulers of the world, he's not coming forcefully, but he's going to display gentleness. And here's particularly how we see that displayed. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. Do you know what a bruised reed is? Here's what a bruised reed is. It was used by shepherds to fashion a small musical instrument. And if it was cracked or torn, guess what? It was useless. So the picture here is something that was fragile, that was small. And he's like, that requires special handling care. The other illustration he gives us here is a faintly burning wick. You've probably all seen this. Like you've got your candle and it's like, it's barely making it. Like if you breathe on it, it's gonna blow out. It's, it's this, it's, man, it's fra- like stay away or it's gonna go out and you're not gonna get... What does he say here? A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Here's the point. These two represent the weak and the oppressed, people that the world deems useless. The Lord's servant will not crush the weak. He will defend them. And if that's what our servant does, that's what we do. It says here in verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. He will not give up. We don't see it here, but later on in Isaiah 53, we're going to see that this mission of justice is going to require what? It's going to require suffering. What's Isaiah 53 say? He was crushed for my iniquities, right? By his wounds, right? We are healed. It's this picture of the cross, the suffering that Jesus is going to walk through. Even though this mission is going to be hard, it will not be easy. He faces resistance and he will be unweakened by the demands of his mission. And here's the cool part. Just as Jesus was unweakened by the demands of his mission, he calls us into this. He puts the spirit in us and he empowers us for a very similar mission. And then it says here, jumping on down to, to verse 6, when, when the, the Lord is addressing this servant, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. He, he's going to be a covenant mediator. And for those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, God has been making covenants with his people. His covenants display his love for them and his promise to redeem them. In some ways, this servant is going to be a mediator of the covenant. We know this is what Jesus does. When, when we break the bread and drink from the cup, he says, this is the new covenant of my blood that was shed for you. Jesus is the covenant mediator. This light for revelation to the Gentiles is this picture of, of light that is spreading into darkness and the increasing scope that this salvation is not just for Israel, but it's for the world. This is why Jesus, or this servant, says he's going to bring justice to the nations. And look who this justice comes to. We see in verse 7. To open eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in Darkness. What's he talking about here? We've already seen that this gospel, this good news, is, this justice is for the weak. Now we hear the blind. This probably refers in their context to 
captives who were in dark prisons. They had been captured. They were in Babylon. They had been exiled. We hear this prisoner language to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. But we also now see that these are also examples spiritually where those who are apart from Jesus are spiritually blind, just like Paul who needed his eyes to be open to the glory of the gospel. Or, or we know spiritually how sin enslaves us to sin. We see that through addictions. We see that in various ways in our world where sin, like people are just enslaved by sin. There's hope. There's joy. You can be free. Your eyes can be open. Maybe even today, you're here today and you're hearing, hey, this servant, I long for justice. This servant is for you. Like your eyes could be open today to see who Jesus is and to trust and believe and follow him and embrace him and give him your life. He is the only hope for a truly just world. And note this, this justice is not just for Israel. It's for the nations. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul quotes Isaiah 42, 6 and Acts 13, 47 as a mandate. We must take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's looking back and he's reading the Old Testament. He's like, how can this gospel not spread? And so here's the point that I want you to get today. Jesus is the promised servant who brings justice to the world. Jesus is the promised servant who brings justice to the world. So how should we respond? I want to give you a few final like, reflections as you think about what does it look like for you to, to respond to this. If Israel, God's chosen people, needed God's servant, how much more? Do you and I? You see, they heard this promise of a servant and looked forward. It may be like the way you're looking forward to Christmas, right? You're looking forward with expect expectancy and hope. We now, reading this, look backward. They look forward in believing that God would sin. We look backward. Jesus has come. And I love this picture that I want to take us to. In Luke chapter 2, we read a little bit earlier, but after that, Jesus is, after he's born, he's presented in the temple. And there's a guy there by the name of Simeon. It says this, Simeon had been longing, waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, Simeon had, had probably read this servant. God's going to send this servant, this one who's going to bring justice to the nations. I long to see him. I want to know him. I want to behold him. And guess what happens? That's exactly what happens. Simeon meets Jesus in the temple that day. And this is what Simeon says. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. His eyes were opened. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You know, there's a lot that you and I have in common with Simeon. Simeon lived in a period of silence of like 400 years. He knew about God's promises. We now live a couple thousand years from Jesus' first coming. We're longing and waiting for his return. We could grow weary of waiting for his return. Look, the difficulties of living in a falling world are hard. I could imagine right now in this season, for some of you, it's not a joyful season. Maybe Christmas for you reveals broken relationships, broken marriages, maybe siblings or children that you long to have a relationship with and that as you see others gather with and you can't. Maybe it reminds you of, of loneliness. Maybe it reminds you of lostness. Death and people that you would long to be with. We're tempted to forget that this servant is a servant who brings justice. As you think about Christmas, you can fight for joy in the midst of brokenness. You can fight for peace. You can long and experience justice now and the hope for justice to come through this servant 
who is Jesus, I would plead with you today to trust in Jesus. He is our hope for true justice in this world. And here's the cool thing. When you embrace Jesus and this servant, God's servant becomes your servant. You embrace him. He invites you into his life and then he sends you out so that he now becomes a sender. I love in that article that I referenced about Tim Keller and justice, he concludes by saying this. You cannot do justice without recognizing how power has been used to exploit and abuse. But you can also not do justice without exerting power yourself. The gospel shows us a savior who does indeed exercise justice. He exercises authority over us, but he uses that authority and power only to serve us. Did you hear that? Jesus exercises authority, but that authority is used to serve us and who was willing to lose it and suffer in order to save us. We have intellectual and heart resources to use power in a way that does not exploit. We must never stop struggling to to walk in our Savior's steps. Did you hear that? We have resources to use power in a way that doesn't exploit. So as you walk now, following Jesus, we walk in gentleness. We go to the nations. This is why as a church, we long for every man, woman, and child in our city and surrounding towns to hear the hope of the good news of Jesus. And this this mission isn't easy, but God will strengthen us and he will sustain us. And think about this as I think about my anger toward Coca. The gospel helps you to seek reconciliation when all you want to do is destroy. In Romans 12, where Paul's encouraging the disciples, he's saying this, he's like, look, don't be overcome with evil. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to God. He will repay. This is where retributive justice, I trust that God's gonna see it all. He's going to take care of it. He says this, don't be overcome with evil, overcome evil with good. The gospel comes in shapes and allows me even to seek reconciliation with people who've hurt me. Because of how good God is, I can trust him. So here's my final prayer. Lord, make us a church on the move. Not comfortable, but courageous. Move us out with urgent love so that your spirit's presence and power overflow in living rooms, classrooms, and conference rooms. Not only was I angry this week, I missed an opportunity this week. As I pray that for us, I woke up distinctively on Thursday with a prayer saying, God, give me somebody today to tell about Jesus. And I went to work that day. And as soon as I got into work downtown, the guy that I work with says, hey, I've got good news for you. And you know how you wanted a couch in your room? A couch is coming today. I didn't know that was happening on Thursday. The guy who delivered my couch, when he walked in my room, it was evident he'd had a bad day. And I engaged with him. I said, hey, how's it going, man? He's like, man, I just want to go home. He dropped the couch off. I was there engaging with my co, my assistant director, and we were doing some things. And about three minutes later, Man, I just came under conviction that that was the person I had prayed for in the morning. God, tell, give me somebody to tell about Jesus. That was the person. And I went to find him, and he had already gone. And I can't shake that. I share that as an example of your pastors blow it at times. We don't always do the right thing, or we look back with regret. 
But as I was praying through our prayers, our hope as a church, and praying, like that's the, that's, that's the real world of saying where justice goes to the nations. It's going to happen in your office space. It's going to be as you pray in the morning, God, give me somebody who needs to hear about the hope of Jesus. It's going to be through a random thing where somebody's walking in your room delivering a couch that you didn't plan or orchestrate. And, he, and I don't know how it would have went, but I knew that day he didn't have hope. And I had, a, I had good news I could have shared with him, and I didn't. And I want to do better next time. And I look to the cross. It helps me. I don't, I don't have to live in shame and regret and guilt there. I just say, God, I need your spirit. Continue to make me the person you want me to be. And I'm inviting us as a church. So let's grow in that. And don't miss every day you're around people who need Jesus. So I invite you today, as I'm inviting us into this servant who brings justice to the nations, would you pray, God, give me somebody this week to tell about Jesus? And would you move out with open eyes to say, who knows? If that's in your home, if that's your neighbor or somebody you're going to meet at work, and let's be faithful and ready. God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, we thank you for this good news that brings justice to the nations. God, we pray if there's somebody here that's eyes aren't open, God, we pray right now. God, would you open eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ? God, if somebody's eyes have been open, God, we pray that they would take steps in turning from sin and trusting in Jesus and following you. And they'd come and tell somebody about that today. And God, for the rest of us, God, would we hear this? God, you're a servant who longs for justice in this world. And we're to now go display that in all of our life. God, we need your help. God, would you produce radical generosity in us? God, would you show us people that we need to just stop caring about ourselves and we need to be, we need to we need to be willing to sacrifice in order to help others. God, who do we need to advocate for, speak up for, be a voice for? God, who are the people that we're showing partiality towards that we need to turn from and display your non-partiality towards them? God, we need your help. God, work in and through us, we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.